0: Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On The Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On The Money.
1: Well, welcome, everybody. After that wonderful Thanksgiving, I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving anyway. I know we did. I think I had about 20 people I was cooking for. Tried a new method this this week, Fred, this year. I actually pre-cooked my turkey, and then I sous vide it, which is yeah. a very fancy pants way to reheat it didn't, and cook.
2: It, it didn't explode like it was on TV. No,
1: no, it worked <laughs> out just fine. So uh, I was happy about that. So anyway, we appreciate everybody listening to the show. That's one of the things we're thankful for. And, of course, usually before the Thanksgiving, if we have a show, I always like to thank WDWS for allowing us to even have the show that we can try to help people throughout the community. And like I always say, it's really trying to get people to figure out better questions to ask their advisors more than answers. Well, in the studio, as you know, I have Dr. Fred Gertz. You've heard him already. Dr. Fred, great to have you in here today. Good to be here. I have certified financial planner professional, David Rudy, who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. David, good morning. Good morning. And financial advisor Daniel Rudy, who also works with me at, at Rudy Wealth Management, who recently passed the third and final retirement income certified professional RICP exam. So, Daniel, congratulations, and thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. You can call in with your questions at 356-9397 or text us on the, text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at WDWS. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. I have more and more people that remind me that I say that all the time. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own due diligence. Well, Fred, I I was just over the weekend, and as I always do before the show, I like to kind of get a – I have three or four sites that I follow and uh, try to get the skinny, and here's kind of my take on it. Um, There's a little bit of worry about this flattening yield curve. I want to talk to you in a minute about that, which just means that short-term rates and higher – and longer-term rates are starting to get closer to each other. and A lot of people think that's an imminent threat to the stock market and the economy. I find that that's not the case when you really look at the historical picture. It looks to me like macroeconomic uh, data is quite good, Fred. It seems likely that rates will be higher in a year. You, you think? What do you think about that?
2: Well, I agree, but uh, I agreed last year, and uh, they didn't there's, go much higher. <laughs> there's
1: 100% consensus for the December right. that there'll be one. And then the thinking is there may be three more in December 18th, but one never knows. Things can right. change, and they, as they say, it's data dependent.
2: Again, everything uh, is lining up in terms of uh, unemployment still being low and uh, a, a little bit of inflation. It's kind of strange to hope for more inflation, but that's what they're well, hoping Well, Japan's for.
1: been hoping for inflation for some 30 years. In yeah. the past month, retail sales, i noticed, have risen to a new all-time high. That has to be a positive. New home sales have risen to a new 10-year high. Unemployment claims at a forty-year low. Manufacturing growth rate of two point seven percent year over year, highest rate in three years. So it looks like there, like I said. There's a hundred. There's when they look at the futures market, it looks like there's a hundred percent chance that. Yeah. Of course, there's never a hundred percent chance, but that's what the betters, I guess, are saying. Right. That the and Fed will.
2: And there seems to be no, uh, not a lot of frothiness now in the in the economy. Uh, maybe a, it's not like a a, certain, a wide uh, uh, swath of uh, stocks are. Uh, in some kind of uh, bubble situation, obviously there's some some are and some aren't, but uh, it, it doesn't seem similar to either to uh, 2007 and eight or uh, 2000.
1: Uh, yeah, not to, it doesn't feel that way to me at all. Uh, it's not certainly some of those things you watch for that you make that make you wonder about a potential recession or a bear market. Just don't seem to be in place. That doesn't make the means that can't happen. Uh, Fed raised its funds, remember, four times in the past two years. I went back and looked, and I noticed that yields, the Treasury yields. So you look at your Two-year and 10-year bonds and and even sometimes your 30-year bonds were lower, actually, in interest rates, several weeks lower. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, all that's kind of added up. Uh, I guess the market knows what it's doing. When I talk about the market, I mean the broad U.S. stock market, for example. And from that extent, a global market, because international returns have been better than U.S. returns this year, but just global equities – a portfolio, you know, well, well diversified, is up about eighteen percent or so so far in two thousand seventeen. Right. You know, think I, think I, about I, that. You know, you just own a global basket index fund, and you're up somewhere around eighteen percent.
2: Yeah, I made my annual uh, five twenty nine mistake, uh, contributing to the uh, uh, my grandchildren's college education. I'm always waiting for the market to go down ten or twenty percent to jump in, and uh, <laughs> I'm still it has, waiting. Really hasn't given anybody <laughs> that
1: chance, and that's you know, and and and. and Put that in perspective, um, really, until this month, mutual fund manager, stock mutual fund manager, has held significant amounts of cash, and only recently have they kind of jumped onto the bull market train.
2: Yeah, that's another argument for passive investment. The headwind of uh, cash is pretty substantial. Imagine
1: what that cash drag in an 18% up year, and last year it was up double digits. Uh, We've been in a terrific bull market, and so many of these actively or professionally managed mutual funds. And it's really that it's that human element. It's that well, we're going to wait for a pullback mentality. That's kind of inside all of us. Um, So, in most respects, I suppose we could say, looking at kind of what professional investors are doing with their cash, maybe people are a little now more bullish than they've been in a while. And this all kind of makes sense to all-time highs in the stock market because you know, again, you look at the third quarter earnings, third quarter of 2017, the Standard and Poor's 500 indexes rose earnings rose 12% year-over-year year. sales grew 6% profit margins expanded to all-time new highs I have to always remember to look for see if anybody's texting us guys uh, you know and now also the profit margins it's a big deal profit margins even outside of energy a lot of people are still claiming well it's you know it's energy it's not outside of energy new high of 10.8% profit margin so we've had continued growth in employment wages consumption um, I guess that tells us the financial results for these companies should be improving, pr- improving, and, and indeed they are. So, uh, like you said, though, it really doesn't add up to a frothy economy by any means. Maybe we're out of the plow horse era. I don't know what to yeah. call the next phase. It's certainly not a racehorse. Um, but it's, it appears that we've moved away from this plow horse that yeah. just kind of gets things done.
2: Right. We've had two quarters of uh, stronger growth, and again, that just could be... Uh a blip or it could be uh, moving to a somewhat higher plateau but again uh, getting to a long term 3% growth rate is a pretty uh, substantial challenge and uh, I don't think uh, many people expect that to happen even with uh, tax reform
1: and i was doing some reading over the weekend and you mentioned the last show that you know we were talked about well what could tax reform do and it seems like your thinking is in line with a lot of the real experts out there not that you're not a real <laughs> expert you're our real <laughs> expert but you know the national players yeah. it, it seems to be this okay if we get it it might improve real gdp by two tenths of a percent maybe three uh, or
2: maybe uh, there could be uh, an initial uh shock of uh, going up by a uh, percent or so but it's not going to continue forever you can't uh, expect a uh, three or four percent growth rate to continue forever there might be some transitory changes that would uh, move us uh, m- up and then
1: maybe ebbs and flows yeah. and you know, we look through the halfway through the fourth quarter the monthly data releases i notice show you know that we could possibly have the third consecutive quarter with growth real gdp growth that's net of inflation of three percent or higher so Believe it or not, guys, last time that happened, where we had three consecutive quarters of 3% GD, real GDP, <laughs> excuse me, was 2004. So doesn't it's that shows you how it's been. It's it's really been a, a really slow economy. And I think that's what's tripped so many investors up and has confused so many investors of how can we be at all-time new highs seemingly week after week, month after month uh, for quite, quite some time, and yet we look around, we look out the windows, and we
2: don't we don't see anything that really identify, that we can identify with. Uh, I think it's also we should have the kind of caveat that uh, this is not a normal world. I mean, every day I expect to look at the uh, Dow Jones and see it go up by a a little bit. And if it goes down 100 points, tomorrow it will wipe that out and go back up. And that's not the way the world works.
1: It really is And it can't work that way because as I try to remind my clients all the time through our newsletters and sometimes listeners on the station, say look the premium returns that we have historically achieved the 10 to 12% compounded annual growth rate with dividends reinvested in large and small stocks uh, respectively has only been a result from premium fluctuation so this is where the psychology of the of, of the successful investor becomes so difficult because after year after year month after month we get complacent and then our risk tolerance increases Uh, It probably really doesn't, but our ability to accept it uh, seems to go up, and it's counter-cyclical, and it's counter-intuitive. And and I think that's a good point. Uh, You know, we always have to be prepared for massive fluctuation at any time. Even in a great secular bull market, there are periods that are extremely painful and extremely silly. That's just the deal. Risk and return are joined at the hip. Maybe a better way to say it is fluctuation and return uh, are joined at the hip. I've never really appreciated this idea that investing in a diversified portfolio of stocks for a lifetime investor is risky. Um, you know, for certainly for a person that wants to put money away that they absolutely need in six weeks or six months or m- maybe even, you know, five years maybe doesn't belong there because you know there you could actually have a loss if you're forced to sell. So the Atlanta Fed's GDP Now model says real GDP is growing at 3.4 percent annual rate that doesn't mean it's true it's just that's their model so it doesn't seem like it's uh, any longer i'm not sure we could call this a plowhorse economy as i mentioned and it seems like there's this the it seems like fred a lot of this what's been driving a lot of this economy the last six or seven years is technology just technology improvements um it just and, and i guess in summary it doesn't seem to me and i think that's what you're saying i don't know that we fixed enough right. things yet to get to where we can expect uh kind of a secular trend of three percent
2: right but also I think the uh, uh, going back to uh, what we talked about several times the uh, question whether the iPhone 10 is the same kind of thing as uh, developing radio or or uh, railroads or uh, movies is, is a, a question that's still open we have technological change whether it is right. uh, impactful for the economy still is an open question do you think
1: somebody uh, you know you, you those some of those like it, obviously the you know, you bring in railroad transportation or air you know air flight yeah. uh, the radio um in many ways is measurable inside a gdp yeah. whereas a lot of the new technology doesn't seem to show up Right. But the 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 improvements it's making in our lives don't seem to get measured in that gdp
2: Right. also uh, uh money spent uh, resources spent for development uh, uh, don't show up either for example uh someone pointed out that there are Hundreds of millions of dollars being spent now for uh, driverless cars, with not a single payoff so far. I mean, that's, right. that's, that's so it may be five or ten years before that happens. That that would seem to be to, to me to be more of a, a game changer than some of the things we uh, see, like a, a better iPhone or something. No like question
1: that. about it. I mean, that's a fundamental transformation, at least the way I see yeah. it. Uh, it sure seems to be. And uh, you know, it's just it would be interesting. And as you point out, so many times. You know, when you talk about an increase of gross domestic product of two or three uh, per, uh, tenths of a percent over a generation, that can make a really big difference. Sure. It could be another trillion, you know, 30 years from now, that can be an additional trillion dollars a year in in GDP. Right. And uh, so that's real important. Well, Daniel, I mentioned to everybody that you passed your RICP exam. And you, so you're back to your, which is retirement income certified professional or is it planner? Professional. Professional. So, yeah, you have to get it right. Well, so you're picking back up on that academic work. So, I know you guys like that. I, of course, am always excited to have you, you know. I don't think I've turned down any of our employees for any additional education they want to get. In fact, we encourage it. So, you passed the Certified Financial Planner exam a while back, though you can't call yourself a Certified Financial Planner professional. Uh, it's a matter of time. But um, So, you're continuing to do that. Uh, you recently finished the coursework, passed it. So... We're happy about that. So uh, why get, I want you to tell the audience, you know, what drove you to get that RICP exam and get that uh, designation?
3: I
4: think it really goes back to we, we really emphasize that we are retirement planners. That means we really need to know all things retirement. And I think Dave and I, when we looked at the curriculum, we saw the people involved with it. And these were really heavyweight academics, and those were the ones who are going to be teaching us throughout the whole program. So,
1: And you mentioned one of them was from the University of Illinois. Right. Craig Lemoyne, Craig. And who we we're going to have lunch with today. So right. I thought that was interesting when you said that, oh, when I said we're going to have lunch with Craig, that you said, oh, he's part of the RICP uh, curriculum. So yeah. That was kind of interesting.
4: But, I mean, it, it was an amazing amount of information for me, especially, um, I mean, it goes from just naming the types of approaches ways to create retirement income such as like the bucket approach or the safety first approach or what's the systematic withdrawal approach do for a client versus a dynamic withdrawal approach right so you really get a good feeling about okay here's how people are doing things in the financial industry and here's kind of like the information that we have for it, which one's the best or what are the pros and cons of each. And then it comes down to even like, okay, well, since we're focusing on retirees, let's talk about long-term care. How do we fund that? Self-fund it or insurance? Or now I know a lot about the Medicare system and the Medicaid system, which is obviously very important for a retiree or the idea of, okay, well, at some point, retirees get older, and are we gonna age in place? Or are we gonna go into an assisted living facility or a continuing care retirement community? And it kind of gives you an idea. It gets really detailed about each one of those, so I'd be able to really point out for a client, here are the pros and cons of each
1: decision. I notice, uh, you must. I'm guessing you might have been cheering for your Auburn football team. Uh, people might oh, not yeah. know it, but Daniel is a graduate of uh, Auburn University. And I know you're watching that game. It sounds like your voice might have paid a little price for it. Yeah. I think mine did too. I did a little bit of yelling (laughs) just for you. Um, So at the most basic level, well, how would you explain to somebody what is retirement income planning? uh, Why the emphasis on income and not just retirement planning?
4: Well, I think, you know, it's really a, a way to get across to the client. Before you were in retirement, you had this salary and you said it was income, right? And except the employer was giving it to you. Right. Well, now you got your social security, maybe your pensions. And then most people these days have a large portion of their wealth in 401ks. And that's where retirement income planning really comes into it because we're going to create income streams from those 401ks, the social security and the pension. So it makes sense to you.
1: And, and the... What would you say the need for that retirement
4: income planning, you know, just how would you describe that? Well, the tough thing is, is if a lot of these mistakes that people make, if if they make them up front, you can't really change them. So by the time you're 70 or 80, and you ran out of money, or you ran out of your assets prematurely, well, then it's really tough to fix from there. And so
1: it's really, Uh, The reality, when we look at the statistics for Social Security, the median amount of Social Security, uh, it's fair to say most people probably aren't going to have the life they desired or always had the vision of if they just have Social Security. Um, So it really needs, that's where these other accounts come in to kind of supplement that income. And that's pretty complex though, isn't it?
4: Oh yeah. I mean, like I said, I I named off a bunch of different approaches and everyone's trying to sell their idea it's really important because i think depending on what you are like what type of person you are what your goals are and what you want out of retirement is gonna determine how we go about kind of like configuring your lifestyle
1: and seems to me guys there's a lot of confusing uh marketing going out there i just saw on on twitter today someone was kind of making fun of this article from an insurance company essentially saying if you think variable annuities are hard to explain, try to explain to the client about running out of money. And it's just kind of pandering to that fear. And they went in to talk about these additional riders you can buy. But I've always find that for the most part, that stuff is garbage and should be. St- you should completely stay away from it. At least most people should. Um, wouldn't you agree, Dave, maybe, that there's this confusing message at all? You mentioned it, Daniel. Everybody seems to have their approach, whether it's bucket strategies, right. which is simply, okay, for the first five years, of re- I'm just simplifying it. You can correct me if I'm wrong. We're going to put the first five or ten years of spending in in savings accounts or CDs or treasuries, and then, you know, we'll have another bucket for the next 15, you know, buckets right. for matching different times. Uh, that's kind of uh, – and then there's the safety first where you lock up the kind of the essential income into – maybe a, a, a immediate annuity that you can buy. It right. gives you a lifetime income that's fixed, typically. Uh, and then, for all your discretionary spend, that's where you might use your, so anyway, there's all kinds of these things, but I found that it becomes, when we talk about it's complex, it, when you step back and you study it, it, I think it becomes a little less complex, but to the average person out there, uh, well, you hear all these concepts, and and it can be really confusing and really lead to some some bad choices.
3: Right.
4: And that was I think the best thing about it cuz now that I truly know the facts, I can give people more just objective advice like, well, that's really not the best way to you know accomplish on what evidence, you want to based, accomplish. Yeah. Based on evidence,
1: right. And the stakes are pretty high, aren't they, on the front end of retirement?
4: Yeah, they they are, so it's just really important to get it right. It is,
1: because uh, one of the things we talk about when it comes to retirement planning is the sequence of returns risk is one of these issues. If we're going to spend from our portfolios and if our portfolios are somewhat balanced in stocks and bonds, they're still going to fluctuate. Not only do we not know, or it it can't be known what our return's going to be over our lifetime. We don't know the order of those returns, whether they'll be favorable or not, and it makes a big difference. And these are just all issues that need to be dealt with. and, And- and I, I really think that people that try to go it on their own um, are going to have a little bit of a tough time with it. It's not intellect. It's just a way of thinking. Finance is a way of thinking. And unfortunately, uh, all too often, we read about even advisors that kind of give people horrible advice. So I really feel for the people that are headed towards retirement that realize maybe they don't want to go on, it, on their own because it's a huge responsibility and the stakes are really high. But then how do you, you know, it always gets back to how how do you find an advisor? I'm not asking you this question, but I'm just saying how I feel people's real dilemma. Because what you're really doing, as I tell prospective clients, is you're not handing over your money. You're handing over your lifestyle. And really smart decisions need to be made, not only at the front end, but all through the turning points, the transitions in life. And there's nobody that can prove up front that they're the right person or the best person. I always tell people what we sell as advisors or retirement income planners is what we sell is invisible. We can't really prove anything. You know, yeah, I've been around for 35 years. I think I've built a pretty uh, good track record of people saying, yeah, that's always worked for me. Uh, but even that is no indication that, well, it's going to work for me. So I feel for our listeners out there, I feel your pain a little bit about what a big responsibility this is and then turning that responsibility to over people it's really it's a really a difficult thing so uh anyway i'm glad you got that dave i know you're still ready to take the final exam for the retirement income certified (laughs) planner degree and you let your little
4: brother beat you to the punch
5: yeah daniel was a little more diligent in his uh, studying than i was so paul catching up
4: paul texted me after i passed the exam, and he said, congratulations, you finally beat Dave to something. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little competitive in our household, except for
1: me. So on that note, then, in your RICP uh, material that you covered as part of it was Medicare Open Enrollment. I know we're kind of in that window now. Right. Uh, Why don't you explain about Medicare Open Enrollment for people that are maybe heading towards 65 and the kinds of things they need to think about or what you learned about?
4: Right. So for fall enrollment, you have October 15th, between October 15th and December 7th, and Medicare offers an open enrollment period during which beneficiaries can make changes among several coverage options. It can be Part A, hospital insurance, and Part B, medical insurance, referred to as original Medicare for most people out there. And then Part C, or Medicare Advantage, which replaces original Medicare and it often includes prescription drug, drug coverage and other services not covered by original Medicare. And then you have Part D. And I think this is the important one for the the fall because this is the time where you can either buy Part D prescription drug coverage. In that window. Or you can switch it. Okay. And so, and
5: as I was reading, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, As I was go reading ahead. through these radio show notes, the thing that I was thinking of was, you know, what's the real practical takeaway here? And as Daniel said, I think the main thing is the prescription drug coverage. Fact of the matter is, most people probably aren't going to be changing yeah. from original Medicare to a Medicare Advantage plan, even though you have that option. But the one thing they really harped on in our RACP course was really every single year you should be reevaluating your Part D policy or Part D, yeah, I guess, it's a policy, yeah. your yeah. Part D coverage. And making sure it still fits your needs, because insurance companies know that people don't do that, right? And they change things to make them less advantageous often. So you so really kind
1: of have to do an inventory of what type of medic- medicine I'm taking, prescriptions. Uh, you know, what are my needs when it comes to that? And then you could have a pretty wide variety of pricing options. Uh, from year to year, it can really change and, and, and reorder itself, can it? Exactly. And they have a, a tool on their website,
5: uh, Medicare.gov and it's called the, the plan finder tool. And basically you type in your prescription drugs and then they pop up a list of plans that are basically the best suited for your particular needs. So it's really, really helpful.
2: No, no, no. I think Medicare though is much more complex than the tax system. I, I uh, feel like I know what's going on in the tax system. I have no idea in, in some regard about uh, Medicare. I just got a bill this week. Uh, the provider uh, billed for $500. Uh, Medicare approved $6. And they paid uh, $5.20, leaving me with $0.80 cents to pay. And I wow. have no idea how you get from 500 down to $0.80. Cents. So, <laughs> so those are the kind of things I just uh, accept unless they're really uh, big and uh, against uh, not in my favor. And then I figure out what they are.
1: Right. So it's a, it's a big deal. So during this window, what changes can people make?
4: So, yeah, right now, so they can change from original Medicare to a Medicare Advantage plan or vice versa. Um, you can switch from one Medicare Advantage plan to another Medicare Advantage plan. Or you can join a Medicare prescription drug plan, switch from one Medicare prescription drug plan to another, or drop Medicare prescription drug coverage. And like I said, um, for this, because there's other times where you can, there's open enrollment periods for the original Medicare part, A and B, different times. But the really important part is, this is really one of the only times where you can start changing Part D or looking at different options. So, for I for some of them, you the have different,
1: part. you have a little more time. But for right. the last two you talked about, uh, you know, you really ought to give yourself enough time and you don't want to wait to the last minute on these things. Yes.
2: I think, uh, uh, test your knowledge, aren't there some plans where if you choose not to enroll when you become eligible, it costs you more later? So you have right. To yes.
4: So, um, for Part D, it's one percent times the months you're not enrolled in it when you should be times the premium you're supposed to pay on that part d so as you said medicare there are
1: parts of it that are complex that if you don't if you don't sign up in time uh when you're when you're eligible and you're supposed to there's pretty good penalty involved in that there so there are some there you really you have to have some knowledge is why i'm trying to get all the boys to make sure that we don't just give these things like healthcare and Medicare. and Some of these are very important part of retirement planning. Income's important, but all your expense side has to be managed right. as well, and that's why I'm really pushing and pushing and saying, guys, if we're gonna hold ourselves out as the retirement planning specialists in this community, uh, let's not give it lip service, let's make sure we're really doing a deep dive in all of these really important areas. And
4: just to finish your question, for Part B, there can be a penalty, too, if you don't enroll when you should be. And it's a 10% penalty for every 12-month period eligible for Medicare And that's is permanent,
1: isn't it, from that point Right, on.
4: and that's permanent. So that's just extra money you have to pay. So you make that mistake, and, I mean, you're stuck with it for the rest of your life. So it's really important to get this stuff right up front. And what's the website, people,
1: if they want to go and learn more to make sure that they're if, – if they're in this window or if they're eligible and maybe – just to make sure they don't make mistakes.
4: So Dave mentioned medicare.gov. And then if you go there, there's a tab in the upper left that says sign up slash change plans. And that's where you'll get a lot of good information on when you can enroll for certain things and when you should. And I just think it's very, very important before you turn 65, I don't think some people know that, to look on this website and see when you're ready to make sure you get that window yeah, right. get that window right.
1: Fred, it seems to me, you know, cause I, I, I see the delight in my client's eyes when they turn 65 and now they're on Medicare because all of a sudden healthcare has become a real right. problem, potential problem for people that wanna retire early, uh, particularly in their 50s cause they may be looking at 10 years of private insurance and it can be a thousand a month per person. And all of a sudden that becomes a really heavy strain. And then magically that kinda goes away at age 65 for most people. Right. Um, Which one of the two systems is improperly priced?
2: (laughs) Well, I think the uh, Medicare obviously uh, has a heavy subsidy, so it's not improperly priced. That's part of the so-called insurance aspect of it. So uh, I think the earlier probably is properly priced if you're looking at the free market. Right.
1: uh, and that's why I, I'm just, I've been getting to wonder, not that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably like everybody, you know, is, you know yeah. I, approach, I approach an age with a six in front of it, you start thinking how important that is. But well, at the same time, <laughs> I kind of think about, well, why is it such a good deal? And how long can that be sustained?
2: But I think that uh, people also don't realize there's kind of an embedded tax in Medicare as well. I, I think I'm paying like $600 a month, $1,200 a month for a family, uh, right. I, even though I'm uh, on Medicare. And the good news is that's because I have enough income to... Well, that's, qualify. I mean, uh, you know,
1: Fred, that's called a high-class problem. You know, the more you make, the more uh, yeah. <laughs> Medicare but, but premiums you pay. Kind of so there is, a, there is thresholds as far as what your Medicare costs. Yeah. And
5: then even when you're working, there's that Medicare surtax for yeah. high-income people. So they're starting to do things to make sure they're continuing to, to make the system viable yeah. and continue to pay but that's, a, that's
2: a question that is involved with tax reform, too. It may or may not yep. uh, stick...
1: Yeah, it's so, you know, they, uh, you know it, Medicare seems so simple on one hand, but a little bit complex just up front on the other hand, and then on an ongoing basis, it's just if you're going to have Part D coverage, which is the prescription coverage, you really need to manage that year by year because our medical care needs change year by year. Our, our, our medicine needs change year by year, and that's a good point. I didn't realize it, that, you know, I suppose insurance companies are smart and they, they know how to shift things to their favor. doesn't make them evil. It makes them businesses. Some people would say evil. So, anyway. Well, guys, uh, uh, your brother Paul, Paul Jr., as we call him, even though he's not a junior, recently wrote an article that was also picked up on Investopedia about the basics of building an investment portfolio that also appeared on MSN.com and on NASDAQ.com. So we shared that on our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. So you can go there. And uh, to get the LinkedIn Investopedia or one of those other sites to read the full article. But in the article, he mentioned six tips that I think are particularly helpful for people who are just starting to build their investment portfolio. So this is unlike our clients. You know, we still have to try to serve the, you know, the twenty-two, you know, people out there that are, you know, in their twenties listening, uh, or, or they care about what we say. Uh, so. The first one I noticed that Paul wrote was, and I and maybe it, maybe it deserves a number one ranking. I don't know if he did this arbitrarily or by importance he didn't tell me, but don't try to beat the market. So, David, why, why do you think that's the first line of the list? And what are we talking about when we say don't try to beat the market? Well, I guess first defining
5: it, what we mean by don't try to beat the market, if you think of what most investors do is they're thinking that investing is all about being smarter than other investors in the world are smarter than, like being able to identify mispriced securities or time the market when to get in and out. And their entire goal is, you know, say the the US stock market or stocks in general earn 10% per year, I'm gonna try to beat that. Or if I'm targeting a certain asset class, I'm gonna try to beat the returns of that asset class through my superior stock picking or market timing. And the problem is that approach really doesn't work. And the reason Paul put that first on this list I'm guessing is because it's really a fundamental philosophy thing. It's it's something that changes the way that you view investing entirely. It's a way of thinking. When you start saying I admit that I am not smart enough to beat the market because apparently very very few people are. It seems as if almost no one can consistently, consistently. over very long periods of time. You start behaving differently. Instead of worrying, instead of following the market and trying to pick stocks and trying to uh, time when to get in and out is this a good time for me to invest this contribution you just start simplifying things drastically the time to invest is when you have the money um, the way to invest is basically the rest of this well <laughs> that kinda this kind of leads to a second
1: recommendation and that, it, actually it, it almost is kind of a natural number two behind the number one don't try to beat the market so what do you do So instead of trying to do that, basically what you're gonna do is own pretty
5: much every asset class across the globe. So that means large company stocks, small company stocks, value stocks, growth stocks within the US, international developed markets, emerging markets, maybe you own some REITs, which are publicly traded real estate funds. You're basically gonna be as diversified as you possibly can be and just reap the returns that the market provides just to people passively
2: owning securities.
1: And that,
2: oh, go ahead, Fred. Well, I was going to say that uh, I'm on a, a pension board and they ask us, uh, what what are your goals or aspirations? And uh, most people are talking about capturing alpha and that sort of thing. And my answer was, I want to uh, get market returns at the lowest possible cost. And people thought it was crazy. <laughs> but uh,
1: uh, Well, the world's moving your way, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to go to a caller. We're going to go to Dan on line one. Dan, thanks for calling on the money. Are you there, Dan?
0: Uh, I think you're talking to Stan.
1: Oh, it's Stan. I'm sorry, Stan.
0: Yes, your old buddy Stan.
1: You are, buddy.
0: Okay, two things. To answer uh, Paul's question as to how the uh, price of a uh, service, medical service, goes from $500 to $5, that's an easy and obvious answer. It's called single-payer. When the uh, medical care providers have a single payer to negotiate uh, price with, that price drops dramatically. Uh, The second point I'd like to make is the fact that uh, right now uh, we have, and you guys are talking about Medicare, we have uh, two uh, tax cut bills by Republicans, in the Congress. Both of those tax cut bills have inside them a $40 billion annual decrease in the government's uh... of Medicare.
1: I'm gonna let Fred handle that one. And Sam, we're gonna move on, but I'm gonna let Fred handle that one.
0: Let me me, me tell you why I'm saying that. Just make it
1: brief, please.
0: Okay. The uh... They passed a uh... A uh, budget bill, and inside that budget bill, it said that over the next ten years, Medicare had to be reduced by four hundred billion dollars. So inside each of these tax bills is an automatic forty billion dollar annual decrease in Medicare. That may not have happened all the first year, but it will happen over the next ten.
1: Okay, I'm going to let Fred okay. answer okay. that, let and we're going to move uh, on. Uh, Thanks, uh, <laughs>
2: Agree, with Stan, to well, start off with. Well,
1: but is, it, is this a classic, it's a decrease of the increase?
2: No, it's a, a, a phony uh, cost-saving. They'll never do it. They, 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 for years, they have, the budget isn't quite balanced. So let say, we'll magically come up with so much in savings. They put that in, and the magic never actually happens. So this is probably just a phony way of making it look less uh, less costly than it otherwise would. But let me, let me actually agree with Stan for once. The uh, A lot of... Uh, what we think of insurance now really is insurance. It's just having someone neg- negotiate for you. For example, the state of <coughs> Illinois uh, insures employees, but they don't buy uh, insurance from an insurance company. They self insure, but they hire used to be an insurance company to manage their claims and that's get an the best. an administrator, third-party and, administrator. And, and, and as uh, Stan said, get the best deal possible, so.
1: Yeah, but the 600 doesn't go to five no, because not, of uh, single payer, no, it, goes, crazy. it goes because of subsidy. I think right. you said it earlier. Well, no,
2: I think it's, it, it's because of some mistake, clerical or otherwise. Well, yeah, maybe
1: 600 uh, to <laughs> yeah. five, I, mean, yeah. I get yeah. that. So that may, I mean, that's an outlier anyway. Yeah. But uh, look, there's no question what right or wrong. The, our medical system is hugely distorted. From all kinds of yep. factors, and it's 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 happened not overnight. It's happened well, probably yeah, since it's, World it's so, War II.
2: Yeah, it's so complicated. It's like when I go to the uh, pharmacy, it's like uh, playing a slot machine. I, I get a prescription, and sometimes it's free, sometimes it's really expensive, sometimes it's halfway depending on whether sure. I, uh, I, I, uh, my my uh, uh, copay and I, I have a medicine man, that man.
1: I'm on uh, <laughs> a beta blocker or some, or one of those uh, for, for my heart, and suddenly instead of being free, it went to a uh, $400 <laughs> and I'm like well so I just didn't get it while I was on vacation I thought hey I that's one of the two is going to kill me uh, paying for it or not taking it and uh, so I found out that through my insurance company, well if you go to Meyer, then it's free yeah. for that particular so I go to Meyer for one of my four medicines so uh, we have a couple of callers on the line we're going to try to get to and we will get to them and John's first thanks for calling on the money
2: hi yes um, sir I have a quick question. I'm currently unemployed I have not I had a 401k through my employer, and I think that ended, I ended that employment in 2011. And during the recession, it was down until below
3: 20000 or whatever. Okay. I don't have much of it in there. And it's up to almost 30000 And I currently have like a mixed risk, I believe. Okay. Portfolio. Sounds like it. What would you suggest I do?
1: You're how old? Roughly? Uh,
3: 53. Okay, 53. And I don't add anything to it.
1: Don't add anything to it. I think at this point, it sounds like you're in a balanced portfolio. Uh, I'd probably. Should
3: I transfer it to less risk? So I'm worried about the stock market because it can't go up
1: indefinitely. Well, actually, it does go up indefinitely historically, but with lots of massive interruptions. And I think that's what you mean. Uh, So, with my idea, the 53 year old or the 50 some odd year old. Is really looking at this money might fund a purpose for the next 40 years. Certainly, 30 of my years might be in retirement. That's when you have to, you have to, you have to divorce yourself <coughs> from a current outlook. I promise you, it, it can only harm you. It will, it, will, it will take away any chance of uh, investment success. Just resign in your mind if you have that balanced portfolio, that periodically it will decline probably 10 to 15%, probably somewhere if history's any guide, every five years or so. Um, but if history's any guide, and of course we always have to say, past performance is no indication of future results so I don't get in trouble. uh, It, at least historically speaking, has not only recovered to where it was, but higher than people ever thought it could go to. So I would be inclined to stay in a balanced portfolio of 50 to 60% stocks, not knowing anything else, and saying for somebody in their 50s, for a 30 to 40 year need, uh, if anything that might be arguably light on the stock market side, and just resign yourself to the fact that there will be plenty of fluctuation to go along with the premium returns that historically portfolios like that have provided. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. And it may also, it may be a pretty uh, safe uh, portfolio if it only went from 20 to uh, 30,000 during during the recovery. That's a good point. That means it's not very uh, weighted towards stock.
1: Okay, so what Fred's saying, if it went down to 20,000, and I know you probably aren't looking at exact numbers, John, but, and then now is at thirty. It's up fifty percent in a stock market that went up basically threefold. So, you know, it sounds to me like you, if anything, uh, are conservatively postured with low fluctuation, uh, and so that makes me even more comfortable. And that's a good point, Fred. Thanks for doing the math for me. Uh, <laughs> so don't panic. Uh, never panic. Okay. So surprise is the mother of panic, right? And so don't allow yourself to become surprised. Just recognize historically speaking I'm just gonna take a balanced portfolio every five years or so it's probably declined 10 to 12 percent and in 2008 2009 declined maybe three times that because that's that's a real outlier that could happen again tomorrow we just never know uh, we don't try to know so we know one thing for the next 30 or 40 years if history's any guys whatever money you have in bonds after taxes and inflation is going to produce a very low disappointing return in fact it will probably produce a return as bad as the worst expectation for the stock market over the next 30 years. That's what my data shows. Okay, awesome. Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks, John. We are going to go to Paul and it's not, not picking Paul's favorite, he's next in line. Paul, thanks for calling.
3: Thank you. I got a question for Fred on social security and Medicare. Um why don't they just take the income cap off the withdrawals on social security and Medicare and just make it unlimited? since it's capped, I believe, at 117 or 118 and just let it go because the wealthier high earners could pay that small percentage, and that would, I would think, solve all the problems.
1: um. I think there's a lot of people that agree with Paul. Well, Uh, there
3: there are
2: two arguments against it. One is that right now there's at least the belief that uh, Social Security is uh, kind of like an insurance system. You put your money in and you get it out. If you did that, it would cease to have that connection. It would be basically a a tax on income, and and you get money back for some other reason. It would just Uh, be
1: another way to subsidize lower earners, correct?
2: And and the other thing is, and again, uh, I'm sure that uh, most people don't have a great deal of sympathy for high earners, but you're adding, uh, if you take the two together, that's a a 15% uh, tax increase. So a 15% marginal tax increase is not something to be... uh, Uh, laughed at. It's it's a real uh, important kind of uh, change and result in people changing their behavior. So I think you'd have to look at the behavioral aspects of it as well. But again, that's that's one of the, there's a whole list of solutions uh, in quotes to the Social Security problem, one is what you said. The other is to raise the retirement age, uh, reduce the inflation adjustment, things like that. Put plans, another sorry. bend
1: point in so yeah. that the wealthier earners get a little bit less of theirs right. than they used to get.
2: So that's one of the, uh, that's in the mix, but it's not a costless kind of uh, solution to Social Security.
1: John, my understanding from all the reading I've done is it, those, the, the ones we really just talked about, uh, another bend point, which is just a way to say, okay, you're getting back a little bit less uh, the more you earn. Uh, moving the age back just a two or three years, uh, it, there's a number of these things. Maybe increasing the cap a little bit more than it has been really can fund that for quite some time and extend mm-hmm. the livelihood of it without going to an uncapped, though you are one of many that see that as the solution, John.
2: But you have to add, I, add them all together. If you think of uh, someone paying a 40% uh, marginal income tax rate for the federal government, maybe in California paying an extra uh, 10% at the state level and then adding on now, uh, 65% which is back to the good old days of the 40s and the 50s. And, and we know and 60s. that
1: money goes where it's treated best, right? We why are they trying to uh, th- at least in theory lower the corporate income tax rate because we know there's trillions of dollars offshore cuz yeah. money goes where it's treated best. I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong or what the policy should be, but I think what Fred's saying, it sounds simple but when you start getting to the higher earners being taxed at 65, 70% or so, Um, Then they spend a lot of money and effort trying to reduce their tax burdens and not pay that tax.
3: Well, I have another question real quick, it's on another subject, is in the healthcare, uh, Carl, as a not-for-profit, won't take Blue Cross Blue Shield on the primary care providers. And then if you look at the Affordable Health Care Act system here in Champaign County, the only choice is Health Alliance which health alliance and we know carl is connected and what it appears to me is they choose and can as a not-for-profit hospital that you think would serve the community doesn't picks and chooses who they don't make don't want and then you're really stuck with one carrier which seems to me as like a monopoly
1: hey john we're going to move uh, on for your call you're breaking up a little bit i want to squeeze another call and i'm going to have fred answer that answer is that okay yeah.
3: okay thanks thank john. you
2: uh, I don't have an answer except that well, the health care is uh, very complex and you get all these kinds of anomalies and that's that's one of them.
1: Okay uh, we have another call we have John on line three. John welcome to on The Money.
2: Uh,
0: expanding on the previous caller in Social Security could you uh, explain to you know, myself and you on about the windfall elimination provision and how that affects your costs in any way shape or form.
1: Sure, we'll do that, John. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop you because we're getting a little interference, and then we, but I'm going to have the boys answer that uh, question. Thanks. Yeah, so basically the windfall elimination provision applies to people
5: who they worked a job at some point where they did pay into the Social Security system. So you're going to, uh, if you looked up your Social Security statement, it would say, hey, you're eligible for benefits. But then say you go work for the University of Illinois after that and you're going to have a government pension and you didn't pay into Social Security while you worked for that government employer. Um, What Social Security is going to do is actually reduce your benefits um, basically based on how large your pension is um, from that government employer and I forget the exact calculation. There's it's a formula that really is highly
1: dependent on how many years you paid into Social Security. If you paid in for 30 years it really doesn't apply to you. 29 is different than yeah. 30. The 30 it's better. Is
2: substantial years. Yeah and substantial years. And yeah. And I, I'm uh, always uh, not very popular when I say this but actually uh, mo- most government policies or many are, are Uh, kind of dumb or have no uh, no particular purpose this actually does and uh, the reason is that social security is not proportional to how much you uh, earn or how much you pay in there's a much bigger payback for low-income people than high-income people so low-income people uh, get back more compared to what they put in than higher people higher income people so in my case uh, I worked for the university and and in Ohio outside the social securities security system most of my life, but I do have some other kinds of income. So if you look at my uh, uh, social security income, I would appear to be a relatively low income person. I get back a a really huge amount compared to what I put in. They say, but you worked outside most of your life. You were uh, compensated uh, adequately in these other jobs. We don't want to give you that bonus. So they basically take away the low income bonus for people who have outside income.
5: Yeah, Yeah, and, and that's why the way it works is basically, um, with Social Security, as Dr. Gertz said, you have these bend points and they replace a certain amount of your average index monthly earnings for diff- up to different thresholds. And what they do is they basically reduce how much of that first threshold you receive back in Social Security benefits and the amount they reduce it by is dependent on how many years that you worked that non-government job. Right.
1: The people that really feel it are people that worked and paid into Social Security for 10 or 12 years. and they have a large pension. It really
2: has a pretty big offset of their Social Security. The, the other thing which is uh, makes it even more uh, painful, uh, when you get every uh, year you get a Social Security update and they tell you what your likely uh, retirement income is going to be and they don't take that into account. Right. So you're looking at the... Uh, you're looking they, at the real number. Well, what yeah, you think that, is the real number, yeah.
1: which would be as if you didn't have this, but it doesn't, on that statement, has no mention of the uh, windfall elimination. All they say
5: is that basically in the fine print, A windfall elimination provision may apply if, you know, you fit these criteria. But you can actually, they have a calculator online on ssa.gov. That's the WEP adjusted calculator. And then you can type in your info and it'll give you what your actual benefit is. I wish they just adjusted it for you on your actual statement, but they don't.
1: They don't, it, and people realize that even if they go to the Social Security office, you might talk to three different people and get three different answers on any question. And it's, I'm not knocking those people. It's you talk about a complex. There are thousands of issues that can impact your Social Security. Uh, maybe we should do a show on that sometime, just about Social Security. And, and you know, the, near as we can tell, uh, it's probably fair to say that most couples of of similar ages that walk in in their early sixties. We find that for the higher earner spouse, typically we're recommending that the higher earning spouse is seventy when they claim, and the lower earning spouse may be at full retirement age that's not that's not always the case because we don't like rules of thumb, but i more often than not uh, that tends to be the advice for most some things have been eliminated uh, uh, in Social Security with that changes in 2015 so it's streamlined it a little bit but
2: very little bit. we always I guess I say the same thing every time we uh, talk about Social Security but uh, we tend to minimize it in some ways saying you can't live on it and so on but the other way around uh, how much would it cost to get a deal like that and it's really huge yeah so when
1: I so I do that calculation for clients I say well you know they'll say oh yeah well that's not that much money and I'll say well do. you and do you know how much money you would have to have in treasury inflation-protected securities at very low interest rates right now to produce that stream of income inflation-adjusted? It's in the millions of dollars for most people, and that kind of makes them appreciate it a little bit more. You know, 1,500 or 2,000 or 3,000 between a couple doesn't sound like it's certainly not Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, but it certainly uh, is something that is a it's a very valuable. If that was an asset, you, everybody everybody's a millionaire in reality synthetically we're all millionaires next door with nothing but social security for most people so that's a really good point Fred. well guys we're about here at the end of the show uh, fred i appreciate you being on uh, i know we're going to do two shows in december i think we're going to do them back to back because i think the tuesday after uh, christmas is one of our shows so i think we're going to do the second and third Uh, Tuesdays of the month but we appreciate everybody listening we appreciate all the calls we had a number of calls today and uh, David and Daniel thanks for being on the show and thanks for listening
0: Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station this is News Talk 1400 WDWS Champaign-Urbana